0: was at a baby birthday party today a baby's first birthday party how many other babies were there there i lost count because they kept (laughs) showing up there was like eight other kids of varying ages the point is like this is our friend's baby like we've both seen this baby before you and i in february Uh uh-huh when she was younger Mm -hmm. like three or four months old and Mm -hmm. now she's a year old Mm-hmm. Name is Ellie, and that's all the personally identifiable information I'm going to put out there because I think her parents listen to the podcast.
1: We, and we're not going to say who they are, but they're pretty cool people, and they have a they're pretty right. cool baby.
0: I like both of them. I like one of them better than the other one. Now try to guess. <laughs> try to guess which one. That's totally not true. I like them both the same. I think <laughs> I know who I, you mean, and I think
1: <laughs> they know who you mean. <laughs>
0: But yeah, we hung out with her some yesterday and some today, and she's eating real people food, and I love watching babies eat real people food. Like she doesn't have any teeth yet. <laughs> she loves pickles, but she just like chaws on them until she sucks all the juice out. Uh huh. Uh huh. And today she's eating birthday cake, and she like she held the fork with one hand like the whole time. She didn't just throw the fork away because she got thrus- frustrated with it. And sometimes she would stab the cake with her fork. But she wasn't like using the fork. No, she was She's killing just, like, the cake. She had to she kill it she first. Was, she knew she was supposed to like the fork was part of eating, but she hadn't figured out which part yet. So she was just stabbing with the fork and then using her other hand to grab handfuls of cake. The and shove fork them in is in what you mouth. use
1: to fend other people off when you're eating your cake. That's true. Yeah. Don't come near me. It's my cake.
0: So I mean, it looks like they're eating most of it, and I think they do get most of it. But then once you like, lift up the stuff that's on them and on the floor. It's like a third of a full third of what they ate to yeah. end up inside them. Funny that
1: you have the story. I this was actually having funny. lunch with a uh, good friend with of mine, Laura and I were having <laughs> kind of, yeah, we were having lunch with a baby the <laughs> other day. Um, and it was like a sandwich shop. We were getting turducken sandwiches. It was really cool. And my friend was just like giving her baby parts of us. Like, I'm amazed at parents who have figured out that like all I need to do is just. R- like shred my food into imperceptibly small pieces yeah. and just hand it to the baby. And even whether or not the baby eats it, it'll be cool.
0: Well, like Susanna got French toast and that baby, like, as soon as that French toast was within reach, like she reached for some of it. But then Susanna, like, cut her off a little little corner. Like, not going to make a difference to Susanna, who's a grown woman. That's true. But to this baby, it was like, dang, I got French toast now.
1: That's true. I also like when babies <laughs> hold up like a piece of food that's kinda of stuck to their hand and they're just showing it to you. They're not even offering it to you. It's just like look at this
0: that I did. Look at the look what, what I did. did. Look at the eat I did. I eated it. And she just started walking too. It's a it's a big it's a wide world of baby stuff. It's it's I just turned thirty so I'm like thinking about my place in the world <laughs> and what I'm gonna leave behind. And whenever I see it, just like a chill baby, just a baby who's got it all figured out, it may, it inspires very particular feelings in me.
1: Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew, and we've got broveries of plenty, and they are am, uh, aching.
0: I'm not gonna say that I'm baby crazy, but I'm crazy for a couple babies in particular. My
1: broveries <laughs> have awakened, and. I don't know what to do about
0: it. That's what Fox I'll say. Clock's ticking. It is ticking. Oh, boy. You've only got, like, 50 more years <laughs> of being fertile. It's <laughs>
1: <That's> totally unfair. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, so each week, we talk about the babies that we like, and then we talk about books that we've read, and then you They're find like word, out.
0: word babies.
1: Yeah, and then we find <laughs> out whether or not – you find out whether or not we liked them. Um so, Andrew, what did you read this week for the
0: show? This week for the show, I read A Confederacy of Dunces by uh, John Kennedy Toole. Interesting. I've heard of this book a bunch. Mm-hmm. I've seen people reading it in public uh, mm-hmm. excitedly, I think. Is it one of those books that you read in public so you can show everybody that you're reading it? Yeah. Like the reverse Fifty Shades of It <laughs> is. Yeah, I think it
1: is. Because it's one of those books that people have heard of, they don't there's nothing else really like in this guy's canon we'll talk about that in a second so like when you're coming to kennedy tool this is the book you read and it it occupies a particular spot in 20th century american literature so uh yeah people are like i'm i'm a I'm a hip kid in English class. I'm reading this book, or I'm trying to get back to that hip kid I was in English class. Right. So I'm <laughs> reading this book
0: because so I don't like. I was never assigned it in English class, so I don't. I don't think it's quite like a core part of no, the, no, the like Laura of the Flies, Great Gatsby circuit mm-hmm. that you that you get to go through in high school. But those in the know will be reading confederacy of dunces it's
1: a book lover's book i mean it won the pulitzer but it was also published like what 12 years after his death in 1969 it was it well it like won the pulitzer in 81 or something yeah
0: published in 1980 um primarily written in 63 so uh, yeah i guess let's just get i'll i'll get into the the basic facts and then maybe you can shade some things in so so Maybe. He, uh, John Kennedy Toole, wrote uh, Confederacy of Dunces* in 1963. He himself was born in 1937 and died in 69. So this book was published well after he died. And what happened basically was that he took this manuscript around. It was it was revised a bunch and then ultimately rejected. And the resultant depression is often cited as one of the reasons why he ended up ending his own life. Mm-hmm. And um, and so his mother, with whom he apparently had a spectacular argument before he drove <laughs> off and, and yeah. killed himself, his mother took it upon herself to shop this manuscript around and get it published and, I guess, prove that her son had a gift. And so she brings it mm-hmm. to the attention of this guy, Walker Percy, who is also uh, an author in his own right. And he wrote he wrote the uh, foreword that goes out in most editions, including the one that i that I read for the show. And so she got it. She bugged and bugged and bugged him basically until he finally agreed to read it. And he started reading it, hoping to find like most manuscripts that people are going to shove into your face if you're like an established author. He, he was hoping that it would be so bad that he would be justified in putting it down instantly. Yes. And so he starts out reading it initially being kind of frustrated that it's not that bad. (laughs) And then as he's reading it, he gets more and more hooked on it. And then he starts wondering, Oh, is this really this good? And so, I mean, it's, it's, it wasn't published instantly after he started advocating for it, but um, this happened in the late seventies and then it was published in 1980. And then it went on to great financial and critical success. And, It's it's, you know, like some of these literary stories, these things that are discovered after their authors have died. It's it's both it's both a cool story and sort of tragic because maybe if it had gotten the response that it eventually got while he was still alive, you know, we he would still be around or he would have written more. The only other thing we have from him really is uh, the Neon Bible, which is I haven't read much about it and I can't find a lot about the critical response to it but he wrote it when he was 16 and i'm just gonna throw this out there like most people are not (laughs) doing their best writing at the age of 16
1: no i he did get into tulane when he was 17 and he was you know tested off the chart iq wise apparently he was certainly very smart
0: yeah by all accounts very very intelligent guy uh
1: but no he i think was on record as saying it was not very good even though he did without his family's knowing attempt to get the book published right after he had written it Mm -hmm. uh and it was not received, so it that kind of not rece- not well received. It it kind of enters one of those curiosity categories where it, it's a work of juvenilia, I believe the word is. Sure. Um, but yeah, he and this probably factors into the book, right? Andrew, is we'll end up talking about New Orleans a little bit. He was uh, oh, well. born and raised in New Orleans. Uh studied at Tulane, as I said. He ended up teaching. English to Spanish-speaking soldiers in Puerto Rico in 1961. He was drafted into the U.S. Army. And that, I think, is when he started writing Confederacy of Dunces uh, and then came back upon discharge and started trying to get the book published. I found it was interesting uh, that he sent the book to Robert Gottlieb, who was the literary agent of Joseph Heller who wrote Catch-22, Thomas Pynchon, Philip Roth, who we haven't done Pynchon on the show, but we did Roth for Portnoy's
0: Complaint. I think we haven't done Pynchon for the same reason we haven't done uh, Wallace. Foster Wallace, <laughs> yes. which, is, which is, I think, a combination of like being intimidated and also the sheer length of most of the stuff that they've written.
1: Yeah, that that's a, like that's another Moby Dick scenario where we tease it three months in advance. <laughs>
0: yeah i swear i'm gonna get this done yeah. this week i'm um, gonna get there
1: and he sent it to gottlieb and i think the response was that it was funny and people liked it but they didn't see the point in it like that's the exact word that gottlieb uses like yeah
0: because it's not plotless but it's very it's very meandering book and i, I for for your sake especially i wanted to draw a a parallels between it and seinfeld because i think structurally it reminded oh, me of a, of a good seinfeld episode <laughs> okay so we'll okay. get to that in a little bit but uh i also it's
1: described as a picaresque novel did you come
0: across right. that andrew yeah i did and uh, that's a genre of prose fiction which depicts the adventures <laughs> of a roguish hero of low social class who lives by his wits in a corrupt society
1: oh thanks dr I just, that's just <laughs> off
0: that's off the dome <laughs> Okay, from my own research,
1: (laughs) which has its has its roots in, you know, 16th, 17th century writing, you know, Spain. Uh, I think there's some roots in like Don Quixote.
0: Yeah. Yeah. One of the like Walker Percy describes Ignatius J. Riley, the the hero ish of this book (laughs) as basically a a fat, gaseous (laughs) Don Quixote. (laughs)
1: And I I wanted to bring that up and make sure we covered it because uh, according to Thrall and Hibbard, thanks Dr. Wikipedia, uh, and their definitions of a lot of genres of fiction, uh, a couple of the qualities of the picaresque novel that I think are probably going to be relevant to our discussion of how this book works is that it's usually written in first person or at least as some sort of autobiographical yet fictional account. Uh, and that the plot is a is not really a plot per se, as much as a a series of connected adventures or episodes.
0: Yes, and that's where the Seinfeld equalities come in.
1: And that the main character may or may not change over the course of those episodes. That seems to be important because uh, that allows for certain amounts of satire uh, and certain kind of critique that is larger than the character on which the book is focused. Mm -hmm. so we'll kind of see how that plays out apparently huck finn is a good example of the picaresque novel even though i think huck finn probably has a little more personal growth than this definition gives it yeah but that is certainly a book that is structured in this kind of here is a bunch of stuff that happens to this character and that's about as much as you need to know so Mm -hmm. let's get into the book andrew uh and, then, and I guess
0: I'll, I'll say now that we're probably gonna drop some cuss bombs and some uh, sexual stuff in the course of this episode. So normally we we, we run a clean show, but sometimes to talk about these books, you gotta get out into the weeds. So we're gonna get out into them this time. The
1: sexy weeds. The sexy, sexy,
0: sexy. Well, maybe not so sexy weeds.
1: Okay, great, thanks. Let's do it. <laughs> Alright, what do you
0: what do you want to know first? Where should we start? Who
1: is the book about? We talked about how the picaresque novel centers on a character, so let's figure out who this character is.
0: Alright, the book is primarily about this fellow, Ignatius J. Riley. He's a resident of New Orleans, Louisiana. And he fancies himself quite the intellectual. He he was away at college for several years. Um, I think seven is the number but some neighbors say that it's something like a decade but yeah he's <laughs> he's you get into college and you get these people who latch onto some of these ideas and they like any first year like philosophy major or, someone who comes in knowing economics philo- major yeah, okay, okay yeah or something something like that they're, they're gonna have like this sort of mile wide inch deep Store of wisdom, and they're going to think that that makes them like the world's expert on any given field. So that's Ignatius J. Riley. If you
1: were a philosophy major, please direct your emails to overdue. Listen, at I'm not saying like
0: if you if you continued your your path, if okay. you continued down your path and you became like a fully fledged philosophy major, I'm not saying that all philosophy majors are like Ignatius J. Riley, but this dude thinks an awful lot about himself. Mm-hmm. And I'm just saying that the vibe is similar to somebody who comes into a field of knowledge and learns a little bit about it. and they, But not enough to know how little they know. Okay, okay. If that makes sense yeah, to you. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> how are we introduced to him? Like, what is that? what What is the setup of the book, at the very least?
0: I mean, he's... So the, set, the, the first sequence, the first major sequence of the book is us being introduced to him and a lot of the other characters. As he's, like, waiting for his mom and he because he's just like loitering he's and he's a very large oddly dressed guy um we're gonna call him just a fat guy (laughs) okay is that how the the book calls him yes the the book deals with him like that they call him fatty and he's just like a giant dude who has who gets like fatter over the course of the novel in a way that is remarked upon both by himself and by other people okay um but like we're not we're not trying to do like cheap fat jokes so is the book trying to do
1: cheap fat jokes
0: Every once in a while. Okay. Just just worth um, noting. That's fine. So he's waiting for his mother, and he draws the attention of this policeman named Mancuso, who is also the, that's also the name of a character in the Amityville Horror that we read a few weeks back. Weird. So. Has nothing to do with anything other than the fact that their names are the same. <laughs>
1: Cripplingly
0: uh, stark analysis there, Andrew. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, th- their names are—that the, name is the name of another name books <laughs>
1: <laughs> stuff i read that is similar to other stuff i read the podcast uh, so there,
0: yeah he's he's waiting for his mother his mother comes out and the policeman is trying to take him downtown because he's he's not a very good policeman his sergeant is just trying to get him to bring people of interest down to the station and by people of interest i think we are supposed to take it to mean primarily like prostitutes okay um so yeah he's just this big loitering oddly dressed guy and his mom comes down and it becomes this whole big thing where his mom's maybe like trying to defuse it. And then there's this old man in the, in the crowd who starts calling the police officer a communist. And then Ignatius like deflects the attention of the police officer onto the old man and gets him arrested. (laughs) Okay. And then they end up going to this bar that's uh that's run by uh, Lana Lee the bar is called the Night of Joy and it's basically a it's a strip club that's trying to present itself as not a strip club and so they meet Lana Lee and they meet Darlene who is a well intentioned but kind of dumb uh, server who also wants to be a performer where by performer we mean stripper uh-huh and it's just it's we meet a whole lot of characters and then uh, Ignatius's mom uh Irene Riley drinks a little too much, and she crashes into like an awning and causes like a thousand or eleven $1, hundred dollars worth of damage to to a property, and she has to pay it back. And that's that's like the the event that sets off the motion of the rest of the novel. Is that Ign- Ignatius is this guy who lays about and fancies himself a philosopher and just just writes and eats all the time, and but this this damage that's been done like. Either they're gonna to have to sell the house that they live in, which Ignatius says actually is absolutely not happening, or Ignatius has to go get himself a job and join the working class, which is something that he disdains very much. Is he not working class? I mean, he does not think that he's working class,
1: but he probably okay. But maybe he is in his spirit.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read to you. I'm I actually have a few passages about Ignatius that I think are gonna establish his character for you Hit in me, a lot of ways. Please. Um so he spends a lot of the novel writing these screeds in uh in big chief tablets which I looked up and were actually a thing. Um you can if you google big chief tablets and look With at the safe images, search on Well no, I mean safe search I I think might be immaterial but you can see why these are not sold anymore. These were like right little writing notebooks that were sold for a time in the middle of the 1900s, but for obvious reasons, including the giant, like, stereotypical Native American person on the cover of them, they're not so much a thing anymore. Oh, no. <laughs> Uh, so he he writes all these weird screeds in these big chief tablets. So we're going to we're going to I'm going to read you just a bunch of stuff straight from the mind of Ignatius J. Riley. Who's he book, writing to, though? He's just writing to he's writing for his readers, his quote unquote readers. He's writing for an audience, but the, is he blogging? Like it's not actually an audience. Is he what? Is he blogging? It's, I guess it would be blogging now. Yeah, that was one thing I wanted to say about Ignatius J. Riley is that he. This dude is what, like your typical, like, angry Reddit user. Yeah. Okay. Was like before the internet was invented. Yes. Like before people had the ability to connect with other oh people. Oh my like god! This. this is just what they did. Can you
1: imagine like a Reddit thread with Ignatius and Holden Caulfield
0: and like Portnoy? I can because that's just Reddit. <laughs> That's every, like, men's rights Reddit is just those idiots talking to each other. Take the red pill, Craig, and talk to all these people on Reddit.
1: King Obama. Stop it. Okay.
0: Uh, With the breakdown of the medieval system, the gods of chaos, lunacy, and bad taste gained ascendancy. Ignatius was writing in one of his big chief tablets. After a period in which the Western world had enjoyed order, tranquility, unity, and oneness with its true god and trinity, there appeared winds of change which spelled evil days ahead. An ill wind blows no one good. The luminous years of Abelard, Thomas A. Beckett, and every man dimmed into dross. Fortuna's wheel had turned on humanity and crushing its collarbone smashing its skull twisting its torso puncturing its pelvis sorrowing its soul having once been so high humanity fell so low what had once been dedicated to the soul was now dedicated to the sale that is rather fine ignatius said to himself and continued his hurried writing uh and that's 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 the kind of that's what he thinks about himself just that he's pretty good at it That he's pretty smart and i'm gonna read you The next paragraph, and there's just a a bunch of stuff to unpack in it. It's pretty good because he he is prone to diversion in his writing. Can't imagine why. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Going to get some of that. Uh, Merchants and charlatans gained control of Europe, calling their insidious gospel the Enlightenment. The day of the locust was at hand, but from the ashes of humanity there arose no phoenix. The humble and pious peasant, Piers Plowman, went to town to sell his children to the lords of the new order for purposes that we may call questionable at best in parentheses c riley comma ignatius j blood on their hands colon the crime of it all a study of some selected abuses in 16th century europe a monograph comma two pages comma 1950 comma rare book room left corridor third floor howard Tilton memorial library tulane university new orleans 18 louisiana Note: I mailed this singular monograph to the library as a gift, however, I am not really certain that it was ever accepted. Aww. It may well have been thrown out because it was only written in pencil on toilet paper. The gyro head widens, the great chain of being had snapped like so many paper clips strung together by some drooling idiot. death, destruction, anarchy, progress, ambition, and self-improvement were to be Pierre’s new fate, and a vicious fate it was to be. Now he was faced with the perversion of having to go to work. I can't. So he hates. He hates. He hates working. He hates like the work a day grind that you and I and so many other people that engage we in just to keep society love, going. Andrew, that yeah. We well, just we love, love it. To I do. I love it so much.
1: Yep. Okay.
0: So I wanted to read that to establish how much he hates working, and I also wanted to read it to establish that he cited a work of his own that was not actually published, but that he wrote on a big chief tablet. And mail into a, the library at the school that he used to go to, <laughs> <laughs> and and it's a work that
1: that like poo poos the enlightenment. Yeah, oh yeah. So at this point in the book, this is chapter two. <laughs> <laughs> great. How are you? Su- how are you feeling about Ignatius? And how do you feel? tool feels about ignatius because i feel i've read some stuff about whether or not you know this is like an author surrogate situation right um or or some sort of author uh like i think i think there are qualities
0: of there are qualities of tool that get picked up in ignatius like i think they're both they're both paranoid they're both intellectual they're both not they're both sort of anti establishment in a in a weird way. But I don't I don't ever get from this book that we're supposed to be rooting for Ignatius. Like and it, it it helps that everybody in this book is kind of equally awful. Like Seinfeld. But Ignatius I mean, he lies, he cheats, he steals, he's And it's not presented as, like, any kind of Robin Hood thing either. Like, he's purely self-interested at every turn. He doesn't grow. It's not even—you don't even really get a sense of why he is the way he is.
1: Yes, he just does stuff.
0: Like, his mother sometimes talks about what a nice boy he was, and now he is this. Okay. But we don't really know, like— it's implied that maybe like his dog died and that was something that was really formative for him. But is that kind of and presented... if, like his dad's not around cause he also died and, but it's not,
1: but knowing this type of story and I have seen similar type of stories in the second that you toss in the dog stuff, like I'm reminded of, of a list of other characters. Um, is that stuff presented as like unsatisfactory answers
0: It's that stuff, especially like the dog thing is given to you like right at the end of the book after you've seen all this other stuff already. So it's I think it's given primarily I mean, it's given to this particular character who Ignatius used to work for. And I think it's done to inspire some sympathy for Ignatius in this other character Okay, which not necessarily believe, to the reader? Yeah, which makes him believe this lie of Ignatius is just about oh, okay. to like wrap one of the book's points up in a little bow. Um, so what, what happens so me, now that we're, more, we're going into the workforce
1: thing, so that seems to be a big deal. Yeah,
0: I want to do a couple more character establishment things for Ignatius, because I think they help answer your question about how the author wants us to feel about him. Great. Uh, so this is him in bed... Talking about masturbating, basically. Yeah. Um. This is this is shortly after the scene that we've seen. He's had an interaction, I think, with his mother, and um, he's just kind of laying in bed, being so, yeah. So awful. you talk
1: to your mom, and then mm-hmm. you go lay in bed and masturbate. Yeah. Well, yes. I mean,
0: he's he's talking to his mom like through his bedroom door. He spends a lot of time in his bedroom, uh, bouncing up and down on his side vigorously. Ignatius sensed a belch rising in his throat, but when he expect- expectantly opened his mouth, he emitted only a small burp. Still, the bouncing had some physiological effect. Ignatius touched the small erection that was pointing downward into the sheet, held it, and lay still trying to decide what to do. In this position, with the red flannel nightshirt around his chest and his massive stomach sagging into the mattress, he thought somewhat sadly that after 18 years with his hobby, it had become merely a mechanical physical act stripped of the flights of fancy and invention that he had once been able to bring to it. At one time, he'd almost developed it into an art form, practicing the hobby with the skill and fervor of an artist and philosopher Philosopher, a scholar and a gentleman there were still hidden in his room several accessories which he had once used a rubber glove a piece of fabric from a silk umbrella a jar of Noxema. putting them away again after it was all over had eventually grown too depressing ignatius manipulated and concentrated at last a vision appeared the familiar figure of the large and devoted collie that it had been his pet when he was in high school woof ignatius almost heard rex say once again woof woof arf Rex looked so lifelike. One ear dropped. He panted. The apparition jumped over a fence and chafed a stick that somehow landed in the middle of Ignatius' quilt. As the tan and white fur grew closer, Ignatius' eyes dilated, crossed, and closed, and he lay wanly back among his four pillows, hoping that he had some Kleenex in his room. Okay. So, one, masturbating is his hobby. Yeah, it's an old hobby. Two, I mean, I guess the dog stuff is... Kind of there. Is a weird part of his masturbation ritual which is cool whatever I don't know what that's supposed to say about him
1: <laughs> yeah I don't know it's yeah it's funny I have not I haven't read a lot of books that hang out and talk about masturbating a lot I've read a few and they stick out in my memory you know we talked about port noise several months ago uh-huh. um if not longer than that. Uh,
0: I've time. Time is, is time. Doesn't matter. It's a flat time, circle. It's, it's weird. Whatever.
1: It. Uh, it's in a book I've read recently uh, by Sherman Alexie, but it's like a fourteen-year-old boy, like kind of confessional story. So like, teenagers are going to talk about masturbating. Like that's just what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of reminds me of like the sad masturbating of American Beauty,
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> right? Or the or the sad, uh, like is it the first episode of Breaking Bad where uh, Skylar's like on eBay, but it's Walt's birthday and so she like pleasures him. Oh but yeah, no but no one's having really, a good like,
0: time. Not interested. It's just it's a purely mechanical act. Yeah, I I think
1: that is a particularly three quarters of the twentieth century experience. <laughs> Like just past, maybe, well, at this point it's early sixties, so it's just past the halfway point. But it's like all these things that we were supposed to come back from the war and enjoy have now just become
0: habits. Like maybe, but you also weren't supposed to like talk about it, though. Well, that's true. Like they don't say masturbating in any like leave any it to Beaver, beaver to masturbate. Sequence.
1: Like that's not a thing that anybody. No, gonna I don't think said. there
0: was ever an episode of Leave It to Beaver where. <laughs> beaver discovered his changing Welcome body. back, like, Potter, I
1: don't... from Masturbating. Oh, no, no. Mr. No, Ed, the Masturbating Steve, Horse.
0: You've got to stop it. No. The Andy Griffith show about <laughs> masturbating. <laughs> Boy, I guess we better tick that little explicit box on this one, huh?
1: So, is this a theme that runs throughout the book, like the sexuality, or is it used...
0: No, go ahead. Now I'm going to need that. That's the problem. Oh, you're... <laughs> oh, God. We can't. We can't. Uh, the question's not if we're going to edit some of that out. It's just how much how it much of edited it.
1: out. Uh, I guess the question is how much of this stuff, like carries throughout the book is it is it a perennial
0: theme again i'm just and he doesn't i mean this this scene does not repeat itself a lot again i'm just this is this and then one other scene i'm just kind of giving to you to establish ignatius's character and to like inspire a reaction in you that i think is what uh tool wants us to I think that's what he's trying to inspire when he talks about Ignatius is just he's he's a thoroughly loathsome guy. And even though he's enclosed in this universe of loathsome people, he himself is uniquely he loathsome. He is the loathsomest. Like his combination of qualities make him the loathsome
1: OK, do you got it? you? <laughs> okay. You said do you have one more passage. To one last thing, a across? food
0: thing. Great. Uh, the the patrolman Mancuso has come to ignatius and his mother's house ignatius is up in his room uh perfecting his hobby i guess stop
1: it ew get out of here (laughs) go away (laughs) gross dad i don't want to talk to you anymore that's
0: how the book says it no
1: he's what perfecting
0: well i mean he used to be better at it now it's just kind of a
1: i used to play the piano (laughs) is
0: don't (laughs) play the piano you'll get hairy palms
1: oh no
0: And uh, Mrs. Riley is offering Patrolman Mancuso a (laughs) jelly donut. He says, here, have a nice jelly donut. I just bought them fresh this morning over by Magazine Street. Ignatius says to me this morning, Mama, I sure feel like a jelly donut, you know? So I went over by the German and I bought them two dozen. Look, they got a few left. She offered Patrolman Mancuso a torn and oily cake box that looked as if it had been subjected to unusual abuse during someone's attempt to take all of the donuts at once. At the bottom of the box, Patrolman Mancuso found two withered pieces of donut out of which, judging by their moist edges, the jelly had been sucked. What? So Ignatius is a food monster (laughs) who (laughs) ate most of the donuts and then the donuts that he didn't eat, he sucked all the jelly out of. Okay. Does this not, like, between this and the earlier uh, hobbyist sequence, does this not paint a picture of Ignatius as being a very distasteful human being? He's you? Cookie
1: Monster. He's Cookie Monster in He's, adult form.
0: Oh, no. Like, if he was on that new ABC Muppets show. Yes. they're all just trying to have sex with each other all the yes. time.
1: Masturbating is a sometimes hobby, Cookie Monster.
0: Oh, I can't, I want, there's so many jokes. <laughs> like, what is C for now? In it's, this terrible universe. It's good enough for me, that's what C oh, is. Oh no, God, <laughs> shut up.
1: So, yeah, Ignatius okay. is,
0: he's described with like, he's... He's from he, Sodom and Gomorrah, is what you're he, saying. He chooses to think of his quote-unquote physique as grand or solid or well-formed But he is, like, he's described with this language that he's, like, a very, he's a very fat guy. He, like, often the book will describe his hands as paws. Like, he's described with this very, like, big animal language. Okay. And it's just, yeah, I think I I think that Tool wants you to be sort of grossed out by him, he is and by a, all the stuff he, that he
1: does. He is a meaty flesh monster, not capable of the philosophical thought he pretends to to create. I
0: mean, he thinks he's capable of it. Tool does it's not. Just that it's just that he's it's his self absorption knows no bounds. Basically,
1: yes, it carries from the spiritual to the intellectual to the physical. Uh huh. Okay. So what the heck happens to him? He He's has out in the world being terrible, and now he, he has, has to, to go, go get a, a job. job. Okay.
0: His first job is at a company called Levy Pants.
1: Yep, like you do. And they, and like Levi pants.
0: jeans, sort of? No, Le- Levy Pants. It's L-E-V-Y. And I just like the, I like the name, the way the Levy Pants like rolls off my tongue. <laughs> it sounds like pants from the future that make you fly. It's No, it's pants that are terrible. Oh, and the guy, like, like the, su- <laughs> the sun of the guy who founded Levy Pants hates Levy Pants and he's trying to sell it, but the factory is in such bad shape and it's in such a bad location that he can't sell it. So there's this, this guy, Mr. Gonzalez, who's the, I guess the guy who's in charge of the day to day stuff. And, uh, there's this, there's this woman, Miss Trixie who is really old and just wants to retire. But Mr. Levy's wife won't let, him fire her or let her retire because she I don't know she fancies herself a psychoanalyst and she thinks that Miss Trixie just needs like she just needs work she just needs to apply herself to realize her full potential or something I don't even know, okay, so he has to go work at levy Pants Mr. Gonzalez is kind of a pushover and so he thinks that Ignatius is great. Ignatius is supposed to be doing all this filing. And making improvements around the office. And really, Ignatius is just throwing the files in the garbage while Mr. Gonzalez is not looking. And eventually he tries to get the factory workers to kind of revolt, but it backfires and he gets fired from Levy pants. Okay. But not before not before he can send a very, 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 very insulting letter with Mr. Levy's signature on it to one of their oldest customers. Oh no. Because Mr. Levy is so disengaged from the going on, goings-on at Levy Pants that he's just... Like, Mr. Gonzalez writes all the letters normally, but Ignatius gets in there and sends one out. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Oh, my God. So, he gets fired from Levy Pants, and then he picks up this job as a hot dog vendor for a uh, Mr. Clyde, who owns Paradise Vendors. And he he, Ignatius eats a bunch of like mostly eats his own hot dogs instead of selling them but he's very good at like blustering and talking about how terrible his mom is and that his mom is a drunk and stuff that has a grain of truth to it but not really okay and he's just he's good at he's good at lying his way into and out of things and so he's hired as this hot dog vendor he I don't know he gets in a lot more trouble from there and then meanwhile, <laughs> Some of the people in the Night of Joy, like there's this whole side plot where uh, Lana Lee, the proprietress of this establishment, is like selling pornography on the side. And the cops are kind of on to her, but not really. And she has this high school age kid running this porn around. And it's like she's providing all this porn to high schoolers all around New Orleans. And there's this guy named Jones who works for Lana Lee but he's being paid way less than the minimum wage because he's a black guy. Okay? And she thinks she can get away with paying him less than the minimum wage cuz she's cuz he's a black guy and the police are basically saying, "Hey, you have no visible means of support and you're you're a vagrant unless you get a job and can like prove that you are are contributing to society in some way." It's just it's this whole big mess of characters and then they all come together for one big climactic scene at the end like i don't i i feel like i don't want to spoil this for anybody okay great because like it's it's not i guess a super plot driven book like like, most of what you are paying attention to is the writing and like the individual situations themselves Mm -hmm. and how ignatius like sets him up for sets himself up for failure and then fails spectacularly every (laughs) single time
1: okay um but it does culminate in in like a scene that happens to involve a lot. Yeah, of like Jones
0: okay. Jones manages to get Lana Lee in trouble and uh patrolman Mancuso manages to almost by accident bring down this big like pornography ring and Ignatius is just caught up in the middle of it <laughs> and he disgraces his family and finally like drives his mother to like commit him to an insane asylum because things are going so badly for him
1: okay so here are my questions the book from everything i've heard coming into it the book is funny yes so i want to know
0: it is genuinely funny
1: and i want to know how it if if you have an example or two aside from anything we've already read that or even just kind of a general feel for how that works and simultaneously it won the Pulitzer so (laughs) why would a thing like this kind of merit that sort of discussion because it's it's certainly like that's usually reserved for a thing that's quote unquote highbrow for whatever reason that means so like what about this book is saying something potentially larger than masturbation jokes and dudes sucking jelly donuts dry uh answer either of those questions first as much time as you need, go.
0: So you're you're asking mostly like, why is this worthy of winning an award,
1: or or being part of the 20th century canon the way that it is? At the very least, awards be damned. I guess.
0: I mean it's it's a very it's a very good character study, even though you hate the character that it's studying. <laughs> okay. It's just the the I mean we I, I read those examples of prose from earlier. It just has a it has a very distinctive way of turning a phrase like think of how it tells you that ignatius is this big food monster who sucks the jelly out of a jelly donut
1: okay okay
0: and think about how that like sticks with you Mm -hmm. if you're reading this and i i guess i don't as far as canon goes like that and that's something we kind of run into on the show and that's one of our weak points as people who aren't
1: well-versed in in some of yeah, the other discussions. Yeah, like, classically
0: yeah. trained or whatever, who aren't necessarily tracing the canon, who are just kind of reading these books one at a time and then reacting to them. I can't say with 100% certainty, like, this comes out in 1980 and what it what it taps into. Fair enough. But I can say that despite having been written a decade and a half before, and, you know, even reading it now in 2015, which is, like, a full 50 years after it was written there's still, there's still something about the characters it captures and the way it describes them and the way it describes the city that things that the stuff takes place in. And just the, this absurd sequence of events that all culminates in all of these, all these little characters clashing in one or two big scenes at the end. Like it's it's very, it is genuinely funny. It's captivating. And it's hard to look away from, I guess. Oh, okay. Way. So
1: it's a giant car fire, is what you're signed kind of. <laughs> so okay, you just said it again that it was funny. What is it? The turns of phrase? Is it the way that characters behave? Because the narration is first person. Is that true? Or it's, it's no, third it is person. not first person. It's third
0: person. That okay. often. It, I mean, you spend a lot of time with Ignatius, but you jump between him and other characters a lot of the book you get from um like letters or diary entries of Ignatius's.
1: It's meta textual. Yeah. So okay. like,
0: here's a, here's a thing that's kind of funny. And, and in, in the sex joke vein that some of the masturbation stuff is, so he has that he's, he's a vendor for paradise, paradise foods or whatever the, the name of it is so selling name, hot dogs. Right. Yeah. Right. And, um, and so he's pushing around this cart with hot dogs in it. And he, because he wants to sell hot dogs, he makes this play on words. He scribbles a sign that says 12 inches of paradise on it. Cause he's selling foot long hot dogs. And he entrusts his cart to a, to a youth. Cause the youth, okay. This is, this is an example of how all these plots come together. So the, the high school age kid who is, Uh, ferrying these pornographic images from uh, Lana Lee to all the high school students, needs to find a place to hide them because he thinks the police are on him, which they are, but, like, by accident. (laughs) Okay. And so he goes up to this hot dog vendor and is like, hey, if I give you some money, will you let me hide these pictures in your, like, bun drawer for a couple of hours?
1: Okay, well, the word bun drawer is funny, so... Yeah, and,
0: and Ignatius says, sure, why don't you watch this cart while I go to the movies, and Ignatius goes to the movies, and then while he's in the movies, the kid draws a bunch of genitals on the 12 inches of paradise sign, and then Ignatius wheels <laughs> it around all evening. Okay.
1: <laughs> okay, that works.
0: Yeah, it's pretty good, right?
1: Yeah. that's, that's... So, For for my own reference, you said, I'm going to make you carry the Seinfeld thing forward. Is he more George or Kramer?
0: He's George. Okay,
1: great. That's all I need to know. I'm on board. Because he
0: gets upset, like he goes to the movies specifically to yell at the movies because he hates them so much. Yeah,
1: he's he's George, which is basically Larry David. That's fine. Okay,
0: he's George. He's like the the unjustified anger of George, with some of the like the feckless. <laughs> weirdness of of Kramer okay but I think it's like 75 25 George to Kramer yeah there's this
1: there's this bizarre 60s 70s and then crops up again in, in the 90s like American male that I think has roots in stuff that dates all the way back to like Dostoyevsky and the underground man this kind of like misanthropic dude who just doesn't fit in and just takes it out on the world by being, and he
0: feels like he is owed stuff.
1: Uh, it's so, but awful. it's not obvious don't... Like,
0: why he feels that way.
1: I only like it when I'm supposed to laugh at it. Like I don't la- like. I wouldn't want a person like this to exist. And <laughs> no, you
0: were up... supposed to laugh at, at, like not with, but at yes. Ignatius throughout this entire book.
1: Okay, okay. Uh, so you also, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about. And we haven't talked really at all about the book being set in New Orleans. And I found it fascinating, given the fact that we just spent a lot of time talking about mas- a masturbating dude and genitals and grossness, that there is a
0: statue of tool in New Orleans. <laughs> and that this- well, no there's uh, there's a statue of Ignatius J. Riley in New Orleans. Oh, okay.
1: And yeah, that, it's not of the author. Is, it's of this character. That's even worse. And this <laughs> book is like described as one of the most authentic depictions of that city. What is that? As someone who we've been to New Orleans once this year is my first time. You've been a couple times, but you are by no been a means few times a native. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. what? What is that about?
0: What I think it captures about New Orleans, and again, I speak not as a native, but as somebody who has a lot of affection for the city and has been a few times. Um, One, it's celebrated for just capturing the dialect. Um, I think it's y a t, Yat or Y-A-T.
1: Where Y-A-T, that's where it comes from. Where where Y-A-T.
0: Okay, for where are you at? Yeah, the particular brand of English dialect that it captures. So it's celebrated for that. There's a really strong sense of, place because it's it's referring to street names and things and okay. like the French Quarter as people who live down there would refer to them sure. so you're you're kind of it talks about Bourbon Street and and some other streets and you're just you're I don't think you're quite expected to know what each street name means but it cl- it's clear that each street name or each like lo- locality name means something to the characters in the book like they know they know the relationship between a street and the kinds of people who go down that way.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's something I've heard also about Ulysses, which is probably one of those books that one of us will have to read at some point and say that it took 3 months to read. Mm-hmm. Uh that the sense of place even if even for someone who's not there is very palpable, right? Just cuz it's so yeah. thorough. Sure. Okay. And it
0: has the and it has a you know it has a black character named Jones who spent who we spent a lot of time with and we I think it, it caps and and this might be just be coming from some of the prologue which in which Walker Percy waxes about how well Tool captures this character without making him like a parody or a minstrel um, it captures like his dialect and his concerns and makes him a fully formed character without devolving into like super racist problematic stuff like i, I think it it captures jones what is it is you're talking about yeah like okay. yeah i think it. i think it captures what it would be like to be a black person in 1963 new orleans okay without without making a mockery of the character the character who you i mean you get a lot of different dialects from a lot of different characters in this book but the one you get the most from is jones and so i just wanted to read a passage and i'm gonna i'm gonna read what's written In my white guy voice, and you're just you're (laughs) you, the listener, are gonna have to pick up what it's like to read the stuff from me saying it.
1: This, oh no, this okay. So, this
0: is this is Jones talking to Lana Lee, who's the proprietress of this of this bar slash strip joint. Please, all right. Uh, and the, the first quote is Jones's I come about that porter job you got advertised in the paper. Yeah, Lana Lee looked at the sunglasses. You got any references? A police give me a reference. He tell me I better get my ass gainfully employed, Jones said, and shot a jet of smoke out into the empty bar. Sorry, no police characters. Not in a business like this. I got an investment to watch. I ain't exactly a character yet, but I can tell they gonna star that vagrant, no visible mean of support stuff on me. They told me, Jones withdrew into a forming cloud. I thought maybe the night of joy liked to help somebody become a member of the community, help keep a poor color boy out of jail. I keep the picket off. Give the night of joy a good civil right rating it's a lot of you you lose the ends of a lot of words, yeah, totally, like vagrant becomes vagrant
1: vagrant, yeah, employ um, rather than employed,
0: yeah, and police yeah,
1: is it, and it's it's fun to read right it's fun to
0: yeah it's it's not hard to parse like some of the some like when we did um weathering heights and you're you got the dialect from that more rustic character and it was just it was hard to read and to understand yeah yeah whereas this like this bounces along and you can hear in your head how that person is supposed to be talking
1: yeah and i think yat is supposed to derive a, it's a mix of brooklyn speech and creole speech it's it got a whole bunch of stuff going on uh, well there's a there's a New Orleans a
0: quote at the beginning of the book that um that i th- that I think establishes what how you're supposed to hear the dialect in your head. There is a New Orleans City accent associated with downtown New Orleans, particularly with the German and Irish Third Ward that is hard to distinguish from the accent of Hoboken, Jersey City, and Astoria Long Island. Where the Al Smith inflection extinct in Manhattan has taken refuge. The reason, as you might expect, is that the same stocks that brought the accent to Manhattan imposed it on New Orleans. So basically saying these are both harbor towns.
1: Oh, yeah. Okay.
0: And they're picking the stuff up from the same sources. That's interesting. That seems important. Because there's that, like, w- when we talk about, like, we've talked, we mentioned Twain already. And, and actually Ignatius hates Mark Twain and thinks that... <laughs> <laughs> our uh, our idol our idolization of Mark Twain is a, a sign of our decay as a society. Oh, <laughs> great, okay, wonderful. <laughs> when we talk about um, Twain and his works and anything where you get into like the N word and and representations of slavery and stuff. Like like to what degree are you depicting just what it was like for people? In a certain time, and at what point are you contributing to, like, racism? And d- d- do you know what I mean? Do you yeah, I mean? yeah, yes, 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 yes.
1: It's like, are you authentically representing a point in time, or are you... Or are you... We, we've run into this before with character, you know, and it's relevant to this work as well, like, characters who behave reprehensibly, or poorly, mm-hmm. or otherwise morally objectionable. Like, is that the author should the author be reprimanded for that and should the book be reprimanded for that or censored for that or are we can we encounter some things that we don't like you know yeah. and we shouldn't maybe we should encounter them in the world maybe that's why we have literature so that we can experience things by proxy and make up our minds about them without them actually having to exist or with with giving us the chance to encounter them in a, in a safer space so that then we can go do something about it. Um, yeah, I, I'm with you. I'm with you on that. The only, only other question I have for you, Andrew, and, and this may or may not be part of what the forward does, like the prologue kind of thing does, and I, I didn't want to dwell on it too much. We mentioned it at the beginning of the show that Tool did... Uh, commit suicide unfortunately in in 69 right Mm -hmm. and did that affect was that in your brain as you were reading the book or were you able to kind of put that aside or is that a thing that affected your read at all because it certainly affects how we read or talk about some authors or certain works by those authors uh or other artists as well as actually i was thinking of nick drake even Um, the musician oh yeah because that that's there's a there's a good analog there i think or useful analog there in someone who did not find the success that they thought that they were possibly deserved you know in their own time and just didn't get it and then the kind of released or published posthumously story or the story that crops up around them after they are gone affects the work that they did leave behind
0: yeah, it's it's rough. Right. And I think that um, with like with this and with Nick Drake. So here's how I would think about it. And here's how I was kind of approaching it as I as I was reading the book is. Um, it does it. The the thing you get, the thing that I get from it is kind of a, it's more of a isn't it too bad that they couldn't do more of what it was that they were doing? Yes. Like, that, they, okay. that they couldn't that they couldn't. They they obviously had something to offer, and because, I mean, partially because they couldn't find the response they were looking for in the time they were working, like they couldn't, they didn't make, they didn't produce more of what they had to offer. They didn't, they maybe they didn't like reach their full potential because yeah, because they came to the decision to take their own lives, and it's just <laughs> it's, it's it's really tragic but like on the other hand when this book was published i mean they they had you know that he had been in correspondence with some publishers and they'd made a bunch of revisions with a version that was published was the original draft lightly edited not something that he had worked on with editors like not the more like quote-unquote polished mm. version not like the to kill a Mockingbird version, but yeah, yeah. Of Watchmen version of this okay. book. To to use a comparison that has nothing to do with anything other than we talked about the editorial process a lot when we talked about Watchmen. And I think that's handy to have in mind while you're approaching something like this. Yeah, and we've Is, talked like it's mm-hmm. it's He ended his life like six years after he wrote this. And so surely there's there are some aspects of his character that led to him ending his life that are visible here. But I, this is not the work of somebody who is like, I'm going to finish this and then I'm going to jump off a bridge. Like and, it's not. Yeah. And that's that, rarely that the case I, at all. It's yeah. Like, I'm, I'm trying to, and this is true of Nick Drake's music too, which is like sad, but beautiful. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time is like, i try to appreciate it for what it is and and keep the keep the sadness about a career cut down in its prime or like before it could reach its full potential. I try to keep that separate. Fair if, enough. If that makes sense. I don't, I don't know if that's how you respond to this kind of stuff or how I'm meant to respond to it. But, yeah, while I was reading this, I was very much sucked up into the work itself. And maybe just because I'm so far removed from it. I don't know. But I was not thinking at every at every step no like, I, oh this this is this was made by somebody who killed himself before before anybody could appreciate what it was that he had done
1: yeah and i certainly i think when i get into a work i'm not thinking about that but it's it is certainly something depending on what it is that i'll think about when i'm not reading it yeah or not listening to it um and i, I know that it'll probably come up when we get around to plath like it'll be worth mm. discussing for plath and, and not um emily it was interesting i was reading a little bit about emily dickinson and not that she you know she didn't take her own life but she did uh uh die of illness a little younger than maybe she needed to
0: yeah and and, and sometimes with that stuff it's a little self-imposed
1: yes and, and and her wishes part of it is that like her wishes were that uh, a lot of her work not survive, and so then, like the work we do have takes on we've extra got a meaning. lot of
0: yeah, we've got a lot of work from people who did not want us to see it, <laughs> yeah, it's <and>, like great, <laughs> but how do we feel about
1: that and and I wonder too, kind of to go back to why does this book why did this book in particular kind of make it to that pulitzer discussion and i I don't want to begrudge the work its own validity as as a piece of art, but I wonder sometimes where our interest in a work kind of comes from the story around it
0: yeah like if and i will say that you know i read the forward to this and then usually when i'm doing research for a book i will save all the author research and all of that until the end until after i've already read the work itself so i can read it with the least amount of that like extraneous stuff
1: kind of baggage and hanging over my mind
0: and then and then i can let the knowledge about the, the author shade in later but I read the foreword, which explicitly lays out the path to publication. And then I read about Tool before I finished the book. And so, yeah, there is, I mean, certainly with something like this, there's a certain morbid, like, yeah, morbid fascination. And I think it's a natural fascination. Of course. Because most people, like the, the path to publication is, oh, I wrote this and then I worked <sighs> it over with my editor and then it was published.
1: Well, and how weird that. That i'm I don't know why I just heard what you said, like at the beginning of the episode about uh turning thirty and leaving something behind, right, like yes, we were talking about babies that we like, but some of the morbid fascination that surrounds work like this is like this is what that person ended up leaving behind, Yeah, I mean I know? think about
0: that i I think about what I'm gonna leave behind literally all the time, like I don't know if we need to talk any more about it <laughs> no we can past, we but. can
1: we don't need to descend down. That cavernous pit. <laughs> no, <laughs> but I mean, I seri-
0: seriously do think about that. Like, it is a significant driving force in pretty much everything that I do. So,
1: Great. So let's hope that this podcast gets in the Library of Congress so that at least it's there. <laughs> I mean, there. tweets
0: about it will be in the Library of Congress. So.
1: Um, and if you would like to tweet us about the show and about this episode of the show, perhaps share your favorite New Orleans memories... Uh, you could do that at twitter.com slash overdue pod or facebook.com slash overdue pod. I wanna thank a bunch of people for reaching out to us on social media this week, including Cogleen, Angelique, Bear Matter Media, uh our friends at Two Bossy Dames, Margaret and Sophie, Kirsty Bovin, Beth, Reader ten sixty six, Swan, Tessa Lee, Rebecca, keep the muse, Meredith. And your friend Bunbury, who is now our friend Bunbury, <laughs> uh, and on a, on Facebook, Amanda and Sarah both reached out at uh, you know telling us that our new listeners list, which is on the website, that anyone will tell you about shortly, was very helpful. And Sarah pointed out that Andrew did a really good imitation of a Simpsons character on our Space Vampire episode, so go take go listen to that. Uh, yeah, we got an email from Lizzie this week, uh, who listened to us on. Uh, who heard about us through pop culture happy hour so when you're sending in notes we'd certainly appreciate knowing where you heard about us because that makes us feel real great andrew if people want to feel even greater about the show where should they go
0: uh they can go to com where they can find links to rss and itunes and stitcher all the places where they can subscribe to the show and get new episodes when they hit every single monday Um, We also, as Craig mentioned, have a page up there for new listeners where um, if you especially if you're recommending the show to somebody uh, by word of mouth, you can give them that link. We've got 10 episodes up there from our first 100 that we think really give people a good idea of what they're getting into. And we I'm not sure if we're going to wait till 150 because that's right around the corner or if we're going to do it sooner than that. But Yeah, we are going to look through the last uh, 50 shows or so that we've done and pick a few more out because we've got a Mm -hmm. couple of requests to update that list. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah, that's helpful for you if you've just started listening and it's helpful if you think that we're great and you want to tell other people about us. Um, Also, on our website, we have Amazon links to the books that we have read and are going to read if you want to read along with us or if you listen to us talk about a book and you want to read it. Um, click those links and buy the books and we get a tiny cut. Uh, we also have a link to our Patreon project, which is a way to support us directly that pays for hosting and equipment and all the stuff that keeps the show humming along. And we have a link to Headgun, which is our podcast network. Up there you can find shows like Twin Gilmore Guys, uh If I Were You, Um, Best of Friends podcast, which is about the TV show Friends. There's a lot of stuff up there, and I think that. You will find at least one show that you like if you already like our show. Uh, Craig, anything else?
1: If you do head over to iTunes, please uh, subscribe, rate, review us. It helps us. uh, Actually, it helps other people discover the show. Like you expressing your feelings about the show helps other people find us. And I want to thank, oh, where's the list? Uh, August August of Wind and Lizzie All The Way, who may or may not be the same Lizzie emailed us. Uh, both of them kind of were very, very generous with their praise, but they pointed out kind of two different listener habits, which is like the binge model where you just listen to whatever nonsense we say and some people who kind of pick and choose based on books that they've read or books that they liked. And both are super valid, uh, and it actually kind of warms our heart that people get to choose their own adventure.
0: Yeah, there were, actually there was one thing I wanted to respond to because we've gotten a couple comments about it, uh, specifically – about the Martian episode, I've gotten a couple. Of, oh yeah, of comments from like one person who we met at Book Riot Live a couple weekends ago, and then um, Lizzie th- through email, um, saying that it didn't seem like I liked the book all that much, <laughs> and I don't think that's incorrect.
1: <laughs>
0: you did but seem like I'll you did not I'll, like the book. That it's, is correct. It's more that I, it's more that I wanted the book to go in a different direction than I did, and I will say on air if I haven't said it already that I think the movie does a way better job with a lot of that stuff than the book did. Like I think that Matt Damon and not not just the actors who were in those roles, but also the um the effect of seeing and hearing those roles rather than reading them makes them seem a lot more human and mm. and it, it, it fills in a lot of those gaps that I was feeling when I read the book. Like it just the, the range of emotion yeah. from Mark Watney and from everybody else I get from watching that movie is more what I wanted from the book. Cool. So I don't know if it's still in theaters where you are, but if you haven't seen it yet and you like the book, I encourage you to see it because I think it's a really, it's an interesting take on the book. And it, like like the best book movies, it's neither better or worse. It's just a really good. It's its own thing. At, yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's a good look at what a what a story can become when you tell it with a different format, without changing a whole lot of stuff. If that makes sense. That does. Yeah,
1: I think that's our show, Andrew.
0: I think that's our show. All right, Craig, do you know what you're going to be reading next week? Well, I will continue. It was going to be Catch-22.
1: Yeah, I'm going to continue reading Catch-22, which is a, is a great uh, companion to this book, actually. But I'll probably turn something else out instead because we have to record before I uh, fly away to Iowa for Turkey Day. So it'll be something else. We'll let you know on social media uh, and the website so that you know what's going on.
0: Yeah, so we're going to do that, and um, that'll happen next Monday. And until then, everybody, I want you to try to be happy.